The scripture lesson for the sermon this evening. As we continue a brief overview of the feasts, the Old Testament, the ones which the Lord commanded Moses, we come to Leviticus chapter 23, verses 26 through 32, as we consider the Day of Atonement. And so here is the Lord's word as he spoke to Moses. We have here recorded direct quotes from the Lord, but these are infallibly recorded as the Holy Spirit superintended Moses' faithful writing of this scripture. So here we read God's holy word, Inspired by him and therefore inerrant, Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 32. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work, It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls. On the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. May the words of my mouth now and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of the Lord. Well, lately, we have been considering in our evening services the feasts and observances of the Old Covenant and their connections, particularly to Christ. So this evening, therefore, we come to consider uh, what was the most important day on the Old Testament liturgical calendar, the day that we in English call the Day of atonement in importance that even outstripped Passover. Indeed, it was so important that in the ancient Jewish writings, it was often simply called the day. And everyone knew which day someone was talking about if they said something was to happen on the day. They meant the day of atonement or literally, as it's called in Hebrew, the day of covering. For it was the day that the, the day of the covering of sin. Uh, it's rightly said, in one source that I uh, noted, that atonement is actually the only theological term we use in the modern church, which is completely of English origin. When you look at that, I I would have assumed many years ago if I looked at a word like atonement, well, uh, with the 
suffix like meant probably came from medieval French or something, and it and it's uh, then probably came from Church Latin in the Middle Ages, and there was probably some uh, kind of uh, verb like atonire or something that meant to be in in accord with, because that's actually what it's translating. Often are terms that mean to be in accord, uh, for peace to have been made between individuals, or here in this case, covering. The covering of sins with the understanding that that is how peace is made between the holy God and sinners. But no, literally, the English word atonement was used to, was invented to translate these biblical terms. Uh, many say that uh, Wycliffe uh, perhaps invented it as he was uh, translating the scriptures into English. And it literally is, if you just break it down, it is at one meant <clears throat> to be at one, and we know in uh, English expressions to be at one with someone is to be of one accord with someone, to be in agreement with someone. But this day of covering or this day of atonement, as we translate it from the Hebrew, even outstripped Passover in its importance. Again, it was often just called the day and everybody knew what day you were talking about. It was culturally far more important even than we would say Christmas or Easter would be to many people today. According to Leviticus 25 verse 9, it was the day on which the year of Jubilee was to be announced. So when it was the time for the Jubilee, if you as you have a, every seventh year, a Sabbath year for the land, for the land to rest, and then there would be that 49th year, and then the following year was the year of Jubilee. You'd have two years in a row where the land rested. The time when debts were cleared and slaves were freed, that was to be announced here at the Day of Atonement. As you may recall from last time, the seventh month on the ceremonial calendar, the month of Tishri, uh, was also the first month of the civil calendar. In other words, the ceremonial year began in the spring, but the, the civil year began in the fall. And so the first day of the month of Tishri, on which the Feast of Trumpets took place, also came to be known as Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, New Year's Day. So what many people today would call Jewish New Year, that's, uh, that's uh, the day that begins this month. Well, then the tenth day of that same month was to be a solemn day. And by the way, just as an aside, we'll note that this uh, shoots down the notion that some people have that the word Sabbath simply means seventh, or it comes from a term related to seven. It does sound something like the word for seven in Hebrew, uh, but uh, that's not the origin of the term. The origin of the term for Sabbath is ceasing or rest, a day of rest. And the way that we know that a Sabbath day doesn't have to be only the seventh day of the week, for example, is that uh, here we have days that are called days of Sabbath rest, Sabbath days that are commanded for Israel, special Sabbaths. And uh, these do not necessarily fall on the seventh day of the week. And uh, for one thing, we know the first day of the month is when the new moon is. So no matter what day of the week it was, uh, this is to be a Sabbath the, the day of, of the Feast of Trumpets, 
was to be a Sabbath. And then we have another Sabbath ten days later. So even if one of them was on the seventh day of the week, the other one couldn't possibly be. Well, the term Sabbath actually comes from the term for ceasing. And we know then this is what uh, Paul is talking about when he tells the Colossians not to let anyone bother them regarding Sabbaths. Uh, he's talking about these special feast days of the Old Covenant. But the tenth day of the month of Tishri, the seventh month of the ceremonial calendar, was this very special, solemn day. It was a day of fasting. We'll get to that in a little bit here. A day of mourning over sin and a day of the covering of the sins of God's people. The Hebrew name for the day, as I mentioned, was Yom Kippur. Literally the day of covering. And by the way, this is also, if for those of you who are interested in linguistics, uh, some linguists have noted this seems to maybe have been a cross-pollinated word that came from somewhere, even uh, in, uh, in uh, Indo-European languages, uh, they, words like cover uh, sound similar from one language to another. And uh, etymologically, kippur actually seems a little bit like one of those words. And it could just be a complete coincidence, uh, but it also could be that maybe there is some cross-pollination. Hebrew is a Semitic language, and yet there seems to be some very some similarity between the word kippur and the word cover as we know it. But whatever the origin, the, the word does mean covering in Hebrew. Yom Kippur, the day of covering. We commonly call it the day of atonement, a time when God's people's sins are covered over and thus they have been made in accord at one with God. The Day of Atonement was not one of the celebrations which required the presence of all adult males uh, of, of Israel at the central sanctuary, so they could still be in their own communities, though they would be preparing to go there for the Feast of Tabernacles a few days later, because the three feasts that required all adult males to be at the central sanctuary, so eventually that would be at Jerusalem, were Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, which, Lord willing, we'll... Uh, read about next week. But Yom Kippur was a day of special ceremonies and rites in the tabernacle and then in the temple afterwards. And it was a day, as we read here, of solemn convocation, a holy day. As we read in verse 27, the tenth day of the seventh month shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. Uh, So we'll get to that in a little bit again, but that also means It is to be a day where people in their own communities were gathering together for worship. So Jesus, in his own time, uh, didn't necessarily, would not have been required by the law to be in Jerusalem for Yom Kippur, but he would have gone to synagogue on Yom Kippur. He would have gathered with the people where he was for worship, and he would have ceased from ordinary labor in obedience to God's law. And he would have afflicted himself in obedience to God's law. Again, we'll get to what that meant here shortly. We see in our scripture lesson from Leviticus 23 that it was to be a day of solemn rest as well. It was to be a Sabbath, a day of holy convocation, so in public worship. So a day of Sabbath, a day of public worship. 
So much as with the regular weekly Sabbath, on the Day of Atonement, God's people were to rest from their ordinary labors. They were to gather together for worship, like we do on the Lord's Day. But in addition to the requirements of an ordinary Sabbath, the people were commanded, afflict your souls. We see that in verse 27 and verse 32. As I already read, this day shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So that's going to take place in the temple. But all of God's people would be obeying this command to afflict your souls. And then down in verse 32, it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls. On the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So so on the ninth day, they'd be getting ready, and then at evening, it would be the beginning of the tenth day, uh, they would uh, begin this time of, of solemn rest and of afflicting their souls until sunset the following evening. Now the word translated there for souls is nephashim in the Hebrew. That's uh, the plural for nephesh. And the nephesh is soul or being or even self-identity. In uh, the New Testament Greek, it's translated as psuche, the word from which we get psychology and things like that. Uh, it refers to the self. It could include the body, but it certainly meant the self, the being. So we might translate this as afflict your beings or afflict yourselves. And the word there, afflict, can also mean humble or deny. So this is a day of self-affliction, of self-humbling, of self-denial. And notice this affliction or self-denial is something observable. Something that others could see whether you were doing it or not. For God commands that anyone who refused to do this, to deny himself, is to be cut off from his people. And we see that in verse 29. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. So it's something that people could see. And failing to do it brought what we would call excommunication. You're not an Israelite. You're cut off from the people. And oftentimes that term cut off referred to the death penalty. The ancient sources are unanimous in telling us that this self-denial, this affliction, took the form of fasting. And so today, uh, most uh, conservative or observant Jews uh, fast on this day. In fact, it was the only required fast that was that had a set date. There were times that God also uh, required fasts or that the authorities would require a fast and affliction of the people on special occasions. Uh, this is the only one that went by the calendar. From the time just before sunset when the Day of Atonement began to the time it ended at sunset the following day, Israelites would fast. But the mere outward refraining from food, as well as from labor, these things were not the ends in and of themselves. Rather, they were to keep the individual focused on his or her own sinfulness. It was a recognition that I do not deserve the things, the good things that God gives me. 
and I'm going to tell my flesh, you do not always get what you want, because I know that my flesh is sinful, and I need God's forgiveness desperately. I need reconciliation. I need to be at one with my holy creator. Meanwhile, while this was going on in all the communities of God's people in Israel, at the temple, the command, offer an offering made by fire, was obeyed by an elaborate series of sacrifices and rites which were prescribed by God, uh, all of which pointed to the holiness of God, as well as the sinfulness of mankind, and the great lengths to which we must go in order for that relationship to be restored. In fact, now as we'll get to here, it doesn't mean that we accomplish it on our own, but it points to the fact that we need a substitute. Indeed, as we'll see, sinners cannot actually go to great enough lengths. But these rites and ceremonies pointed to the sinless one who could accomplish this atonement, this reconciliation on behalf of God's people. Between Leviticus 16 and Numbers 29, verses 7 through 11, we learn that at the tabernacle and later the temple, uh, there were uh, several things occurring. Of course, there were the ordinary daily morning and evening sacrifices. That happened every day. There was also a festal sacrifice. Uh, that is, there was a special set of sacrifices that uh, went along with this special observance. They sacrificed one bullock, one ram, seven lambs, and one goat kid. All just as an extra sacrifice for this day of atonement. And then there was the particular sacrifice of atonement. And that actually had several steps involved. First, the high priest was required to bathe completely. And then he would don a pure white garment. Think of how Christ, being our great and perfect high priest, is clothed in the perfect white garments of his own righteousness. After the morning sacrifice, the priest, the high priest, would go to the altar of sacrifice in the courtyard of the temple, and he would there sacrifice a young bull and collect its blood in a vessel. And he would carry that vessel as well as some incense and a censer with coals from the altar, fire, so he would have the vessel in one hand and he would have incense probably gripped in the other hand or in a a carrier, and he would have the censer with coals from the fire of the altar in the courtyard, and he would go into the holy place, the main room of the temple. And then he would go up to the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, from the holy of holies, And there stood the altar of incense, just outside the curtain. And on that altar of incense, he would burn on the coals from the altar that he brought with him, the incense that he brought. And this would create a great cloud of smoke, and that was considered something of a shield, as it were, for the high priest, 
from the glorious presence of God, the Shekinah glory, which, uh, which manifested over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. For on this day and this day alone, of all days of the year, the high priest and only the high priest would enter the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And he would go into that room with the bowl of the blood of the bull. And with his finger, he would sprinkle that blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. That lid was known as the mercy seat. And in different uh, passages of the Old Testament, it's considered God's throne or God's footstool on earth. It's a representation of God's heavenly throne room. And this, doing this, sprinkling the blood of the bull on the mercy seat was done to cover the sins of the high priest and his family. Only with his sins now covered could he possibly be the representative of Israel to make atonement for their sins. This, of course, points to the fact that we need someone who has no sins to make true atonement for us. So the priest would then, after having made atonement for his and his family's sins, would return to the temple. He would go through the holy place, out to the court, to the altar of sacrifice, at which time two goats would be brought forward. Both were to be without blemish or defect of any kind. Lots would then be cast to decide the role that each goat would play in this ceremony. One would be selected as the sin offering for the people. And so the priest would then kill the goat selected as the sin offering. Again, all of this pointing to the fact that sin demands death. This would not be a pleasant sight. They were killed, these animals, this bull and this goat, by the cutting of the throat. There would have been a great volume of blood spraying out. The goat was killed, and the high priest would collect the goat's blood now in a vessel and repeat the process. He would go back into the holy place and threw it into the holy of holies, and then sprinkle the blood of that goat on the mercy seat to cover the sins of Israel. Some theologians have spoken of this as being as if God were seated on the mercy seat and this blood obscured his vision or became the lens through which he saw Israel. And because sin requires death, He's seeing through the blood, as it were, and seeing the death has been accomplished. And so the sins are paid for. When the high priest returned outside, after doing this, the other goat would be brought before him, now alive, and he would lay both his hands on the goat's head, and he would confess the sins of Israel. And that goat would then be led out into the wilderness 
And after it had been led so far into the wilderness, it would be set free. It would be released to escape into the landscape. Hence it was known as the scapegoat. When we call it something a scapegoat, we're referring to this ceremony. And scape either comes from escape or going into the landscape. But this goat would symbolically be carrying the sins of Israel away from the presence of the Lord. And many of the passages of the Old Testament say that he was carrying Israel's sins to Azazel. And Azazel was often thought of as as being a, a fallen angel, a demonic being that dwelt in the desert. But whatever the term means, it's speaking of the sins being carried away into a place of guilt, but away from the presence of the Lord. Well, after that was done, the burnt offering of a ram was made. The fat from the sacrificed bull and goat were also burned on the altar, while the rest of their carcasses were carried outside the camp or the city to be burned. So very elaborate and very very perfectly prescribed uh, ceremonies that had to be carried out just as God had commanded. All of this just to make atonement for one scant year. After which the festal sacrifices were made and the day was closed with the evening sacrifice. This was a busy day in the temple. After sunset the festal sacrifice could actually be eaten because the fast would be over. Hebrews 10.4 reminds us, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Why would the author of Hebrews say that? Well, he's pointing out a biblical fact. Animals cannot take away human sin. Human sin requires human death. Contrary to what many uh, animal rights activists today might think, a bull is not worth a human life, let alone the lives of all of a nation, or even all of a priest and his family and a goat worthy of all of the sins of a nation. These things cannot take away sins. The only reason they did, in a sense, the only reason these sacrifices were efficacious at all was because they pointed to the only truly efficacious atoning sacrifice, the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. This is why, of course, the crucifixion of Jesus is the turning point of all history, because everything before it was pointing to it, and everything after relies upon it. If the wages of sin is the everlasting death of the sinner, only the death of a sinless human substitute could possibly redeem a person from the everlasting death of hell. And the only way that the sins of an entire people that God has chosen for himself could be paid for is if that one person dying for their sins was worth more than the life of one single human being. If he was God incarnate, then he could, in a matter of hours, pay the penalty that would take all of us, all of eternity, to pay. So Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 15 tell us, 
But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, that's referring to uh, how you uh, dedicate uh, a temple, that it be cleansed, If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The Day of Atonement looked forward to Christ Jesus. And only He could accomplish what it was pointing to. He was the perfect, sinless high priest. He didn't need to sacrifice a bull for His own sins, and that only for lasting a year. He had no sins of His own for which to atone. He was the unblemished sacrifice whose blood he carried not merely into an earthly representation of heaven, but into the heavenly throne room of God himself, into his holy presence. When that blood was shed, it was outside the walls of Jerusalem, just as the carcasses were carried outside and as the scapegoat was led away. For Jesus, dying on the cross outside the city, bore the sins of his people away from the presence of the Lord. It is that once-for-all atoning sacrifice that we remember when we observe the Lord's Supper. And it is that once-for-all atoning sacrifice that we must rely on. And on nothing else, trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone, or you have no standing before the living God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has accomplished what the blood of bulls and goats could not, but that to which they looked forward, the true atonement of your people, the covering of our sins, and our reconciliation, our atonement, our one accord with our holy God. We pray that we would honor him and learn to serve him all the more each day that we might show our thanksgiving for what he has accomplished, and that we might rely only on him for that atonement. We pray in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.